Okay, so we're studying through uh, the Gospel of Luke's account of Jesus' birth this Christmas. And we're, we started out at the beginning of the story in Luke 26. Last week, we looked down to verse 38. So we're picking up in verse 39 and working our way down to verse uh, 56 this morning. And then next week, Christmas morning, for those of you who are able to join us here, uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 2 and looking at that. Um, but we're calling this series, God and Sinners Reconciled. Uh, it's, it's a line that was taken, that I took from Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. It's uh, one of the great Christmas songs written by Charles Wesley in the 1700s and uh, just has some really beautiful things in that song. Uh, but one of the lines that grabbed me this year was that phrase, God and Sinners Reconciled. And that really is the heart of the Christmas story. That's why Jesus came. It was to reconcile sinners to himself through Jesus. And, and so we're, we're just taking that theme of being reconciled uh, and looking at what that means for us. So last week we looked at grace. We looked at from the story of the angel announcing the birth of Jesus or announcing the uh, conception of Jesus to the uh, Virgin Mary. Uh, and, and we looked at how grace is actually at the whole beginning of this story, that, that the angel's first words to Mary are, greetings, O favored one. And that word favored is the same Greek word that gets translated as grace. And, and so grace is what starts this whole story, that God would show us unmerited, undeserved favor and kindness and love, and, and that that is the motivation for God sending his son into the world. It would be to give us grace and to, and to bring us to himself through that grace. Now, today, as we turn our, to the next passage, what we're seeing from it is really uh, the response of Mary's heart for grace and for this baby and for what would come through Jesus. And the, the response we see is joy. Joy is what comes out of a heart that has encountered grace. And uh, we, we see it actually in this text all over. Um, but we're going to start in verse 39, and we'll read down to verse 45. And it's an amazing thing. Actually, verse 46 uh, or 7 we'll read down to. And here's, here's what it says. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town of Judea. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth, we, we learn earlier in the story, is the mother of John the Baptist. And she is an elderly woman who has now been, uh, who has not had any children in her life and is now pregnant with John the Baptist. And she's six months pregnant, we know from the, the story earlier on. And it says uh, that when, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, that'd be John the Baptist, leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, the Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed, and there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
So here we see joy all over the passage, right? We see this uh, baby, uh, John the Baptist, in the womb, leaping for joy at the sound of Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus at this moment. Uh, and, and the joy that this unborn baby, John the Baptist, has in, just, that's just an, I mean, that's incredible. That's crazy. I don't know how to totally uh, understand that, except that God is at work in this whole thing to bring joy as the ultimate response, that this unborn baby, John the Baptist, is joyful in the womb, that Jesus is in his presence in the womb. It's kind of strange to think of, but that Elizabeth expresses joy. And then Ultimately, what I want to hone in on here is Mary and her response to this great thing. And, and that's where she starts to sing a song of praise or perhaps writes poetry here. It's, um, it, and, and it just is an amazing thing that verse 46 through 55 records the words of Mary and, and all of it is just laced with joy. It starts that way, right? Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Her spirit rejoices. That's where joy is, right? It's rejoicing is the response of a heart that has joy. And so she is rejoicing in God as her Savior who has given her this amazing uh, gift of being the one to deliver the Messiah, the Savior of the world into into the world. And, and here she expresses this joy. And it's an interesting thing because when you think about Christmas and you think about the holiday that we're celebrating in just a week and really all the things we've got leading up to it with the Christmas parties and the, and, and the cookies and all the things. And, you know, if you had to kind of summarize this season with one word, it would probably be joy. Um, not because we always feel joyful during this. I, I totally understand the hardships that, that are here during this time, the loss we can feel uh, during this time. The, these, these days can sometimes amplify that stuff, which is absolutely true, and we need to recognize it and deal with that in our hearts and bring those things to the Lord and to others. But we know <clears throat> that joy is just permeating everything else during this season. <coughs> Excuse me. And... Um, let me take a drink of water here because now I caught something in my throat. Ah, it's going to be rough. Okay. <coughs> All right, we'll try that. Um, and so, you know, you get Christmas cards in the mail. I think all the Christmas cards I've gotten, every one of them has had joy on the, on the top of it, right? With beautiful pictures of these family families and friends and they all have joy to the world or Joy is the season, or all these things, right? So joy is just kind of that word that captures this season, but it can, be, can feel so fake, right? It can feel very phony because we know that there's not always joy. At the same time, we also know that this is the season that we celebrate Jesus Christ coming into the world, which is really what ought to anchor our joy. It's not the circumstances of our lives that bring us joy all the time because our circumstances aren't always good. <coughs> but it is Jesus that brings us joy. And that's what Mary is expressing. When you think about Mary's story, 
the whole thing with her being the, the mother of Jesus is a mixed bag of emotions. Because on one level, there's a great joy in the fact that, that God is going to use her in this way. And because God is going to use her in this way, all of her plans were shattered. All of the hopes and dreams she had as a, as a young woman in Nazareth are gone. Mary actually, and I don't think we'd think about this enough, but the fact that Mary is the mother of Jesus through the conception of the Holy Spirit, not through marriage, not through the natural way of having children, um, led her to an entire lifetime of um, at least suspicion and, and rumors and gossip, and her reputation was, was ruined by, to a lot of people and their perspective because they didn't believe that this was a miracle. You know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, sure, okay, yeah, right. Oh, virgin birth, got it, uh-huh. Like, none of us would have believed that story either if we lived in that day. And so she, she suffered. I mean, there's no doubt she suffered in, in loss of reputation, loss of respect, her, her perhaps lost friendships or family relationships through this. And so it's an interesting thing when we think about joy that it's not based on the circumstances of life being awesome all the time. But what is it based on? What is joy anchored in? What is it, what is it rooted to? Well, it's rooted to our relationship with God through Christ. And, and that's where she actually goes on to express why she rejoices in God. Verse 48 through 55, she gives a long string of reasons for having joy in God and rejoicing in Him. Let's look at them. Verse 48, it says, For, for because, so she's rejoicing in God her Savior, because He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is a uh, section of scripture that's called the Magnificat. It's, it's, uh, that's what Bible scholars have titled this. It's, an, it's a magnificent psalm of praise or song of praise to, to God from Mary's heart as she reflects on this this call that God has given her. But notice why she expresses joy in God. There's a there's a number of reasons that we saw and alt, but ultimately what it boils down to is that God has looked at her with grace and has extended to her though she was not worthy of grace, he has extended to her mercy, and grace and all the things that that ultimately will come through Christ. That God looked at her on, in her humble state, 
right? She wasn't wealthy. She wasn't powerful. She wasn't prominent. She was from a small town in the middle of nowhere. No one had heard of Nazareth. And yet this woman, out of all the women in Israel, was who God chose to look at and decide to bless through this gift. She acknowledges in verse 49 that the mighty one, the God of the world, has done great things for her. Some of those great things are that he's shown mercy to her. In verse 50, 51, he shows strength to save her. Verse 52, that he has exalted those who are low or humble, that he fills the hungry, spiritually hungry, with good things, and that he has helped and remembered his people. Mary just runs through this string of reasons why she can have joy in God, but none of them are based on her circumstances. They're all based ultimately on God and what he has done for her. John Piper uh, preached a sermon back in like the 80s on this, and uh, here's what he said. I think it was helpful, um, and I'll read it to you. He says, Mary's words are a warning to us not to make, make the common mistake that because God is great, he shows partiality to great people. Or because God is exalted, that he favors what is exalted among people. Just the opposite is the case. God's holiness, his greatness, has expressed itself and will express itself by exalting the lowly and abased, uh, and, uh, and abasing the prideful. Right, so what God does in the world is he takes the lowly, he takes the humble, and he exalts them. God shows us this ultimately in Jesus, that our joy is found in Christ, and the way into joy is humility. And that's really what Mary's talking about here, right? Her spirit rejoices in God because God has looked on her humble estate and has called her blessed. That's true for Mary, but that's true for every one of us. When we are humbled before the Lord and acknowledge our sin, right? God and sinners reconciled. It's not that we are standing up on our own two feet and going, I, I can get myself to God on my own. No, we, we have to say we're, we're low. We should be despised, but we're not because of Christ. Mary expressed that and experienced it. We see it fleshed out even further in, in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I want to spend some time there because I think that what Mary says uh, is really beautifully connected to what Paul writes in, in the book of Philippians. And this is a familiar passage. It's one that we think about at Christmas time quite a bit as well. And it, it talks about... Jesus Christ entering into the world in a humble way, right? That, that even our God who is mighty and our God who is holy and our God who is great humbled himself entering into this world. If you look at what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, here's what it says in verse 6, the end of, very end of verse 5, he says, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, right? But rather, in verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see in, in the whole story of Christmas, it is humility that ultimately brings us to joy through Christ, right? But it starts with Christ. It starts with his, his work as a humble baby entering into our world and living a humble life, right? Jesus never had any money, not significantly. He was a, he was a very modest, quiet living man. And then in, for, for 30 years, he was living in complete obscurity. It was only the last three years of his life that he was out in public and he was teaching and demonstrating miracles. But Jesus Christ was God who, be, who ultimately left his throne in heaven and became one of us. That message is why we ought to follow suit with humility. God is not asking us to do anything he has not himself done, which is amazing. That's where Paul starts this chapter in, in verse 1. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, sympathy, uh, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit or pride, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Right. So the whole thing here is Paul is calling us as followers of Jesus to emulate or follow in his Jesus' footsteps in humility. And of course we do that ultimately because it's the way into salvation. We cannot be saved without acknowledging our need. And so here Jesus shows us his willingness to be humbled. He comes into the world through a humble woman's life. And we get to celebrate our, our salvation through humility. The overwhelming message of the passage in Luke and the passage here in Philippians 2 is that joy comes to us through the work of salvation through Jesus Christ. Without humility, salvation doesn't take hold in us, right? We're not saved because we're smarter than other people. We're not saved because we're better than other people. We all know that. We know it in our hearts. We may not always live like that's true, but we, we know it deep down. And it's ultimately the humble, those who acknowledge their need for a Savior and come to Jesus that are saved. But what's amazing is as we continue to work through Philippians, the whole message of Philippians is essentially this, rejoice. It's, but rejoice is anchored in the humility of Jesus Christ, that we get to look to him and then respond in our, with our own humility. And what flows from that is joy. So the way into joy is humility. That's 
that's the point. And we'll look at some other examples in Philippians, but I, I want to tell you something that C.S. Lewis wrote in, in Mere Christianity. He, I thought this was just a helpful picture. He said, if, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, peace, eternal life, you must get close to and even into the thing that has them. And of course, he's talking about the person of Jesus. And so he he says, if we want to get warm, we've got to be near the fire, right? We've got to get close to that which provides us with warmth. If we want to be wet, we have to be in or very near the thing that can get us wet, water. And, it, and on the flip side, on the spiritual side of that, Lewis says if we want joy, we have to be close to and even get into the one that has those things. And I think that's really the point of the letter to the Philippians, is that as we embrace this God who himself was humbled, came through the humility of Mary, and then we enter into that humility, joy is the result of that. So let's do a quick quick fly-through of Philippians. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Why? Well, he goes on uh, to talk about how we should be looking out for those who would keep us away from humility. He says to look out for the dogs, look out for evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So, so So you hear what he's saying. He's saying that we should rejoice in the Lord. And how do we rejoice in the Lord? We put no confidence in the flesh, meaning we put no confidence in our ability to save ourselves through religious or non-religious activities. And then Paul uses himself as an example here. And he says, listen, I, I have all the reason to be confident in the flesh. Why? Because he just basically works through his resume. He was as a Jewish man circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And as to following the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal for his faith, he was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. It's a pretty impressive resume, but here's what he says. Whatever, verse 7, whatever gain I had from all that activity, from all that spiritual work, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, so that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, 
that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So just by doing, just by reading that passage, okay, what we're seeing in this passage is that true joy can be experienced through salvation as we enter into it humbly. Paul is saying, all the things I could have leaned on to secure myself in my activity and my good works and my religion are ultimately meaningless and empty because they don't produce the righteousness of God. And it's only through the righteousness of God in Christ that we can be saved. And the only way there is to, rejo- is to humbly acknowledge our need. And when we do, we can rejoice. So it's a real weird thing. This Christian life is really weird because the way to get into it is to acknowledge that we're not good enough for it. But once we do, once we really believe that and embrace it and come to Jesus as our only hope, then we actually get the things that we would, would have wanted to have, which is joy and meaning and peace and purpose and all those things. So it's like, it's, it's very strange because the way up is actually down. And, and so it's, it's counterintuitive. This whole Christian message is, it doesn't compute in our, in our minds because we think, no, the way up is up. Uh, it's not, actually. Not, not in God's way, it's down. We go into humility and then we are resurrected up. And so here is chapter 3, but then if we go to chapter 4, we see it again in verse 4 through 7. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So again, we're seeing this call and command to rejoice in the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say it, rejoice. But, but how does that express itself? How does that come out in our lives? In this, in this particular paragraph, it comes out in our lives as we bring all of our troubles to him. We bring all the junk we've got in our lives by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we bring all of it to him so that as he takes it, he replaces all of our sorrow with joy and he gives us peace that surpasses all of our understanding and he will guard us. The the overarching message of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, but I think it's throughout the whole Bible, is that joy is not found in what happens to us. Because most of the time, what happens to us here on earth is not great. We know that. Everyone in this room knows that. Everyone in this room knows that we we can struggle with finances, we can struggle with health, we can struggle with relationships. Sin permeates everything. And yet the message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came into our world humbly as a baby to be born for us, to live a life of sinlessness before God so that we 
can be reconciled to him. And that reconciliation results in joy, in the ability to rejoice regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our, tr- of our struggles, which are many. We can still find joy. And that's what the Apostle James tells us in the very start of his letter in verse 2 of James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That seems crazy, right? Count it all joy when you encounter trials of all kinds, right? Lots of different kinds of trials out there. Why does he say that? Verse 3 tells us, because you know that the testing of your faith, faith is only faith when it actually encounters the real world, right? And there's this rub and this you know, the rubber meets the road is that, that expression, right? Paul's, Paul, I mean, James here is rather, go, he's going, when, you're, when your faith actually has to mean something because there's trouble in your life, that will produce steadfastness. It'll produce the ability to stick with Jesus and letting steadfastness having its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God uses trials, and so we can count them as joy. As counterintuitive, as crazy as that sounds, Mary, in her amazing passage of praise to God, is saying these things because they're true, and also she's saying these things in the midst of incredible difficulty. This is, a, this is a woman in the first century, as we would keep, keep track of time, and she is unmarried, now pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and her whole life is just upended. And even before that, her life wasn't looking all that great. She was living in poverty. She had very little going for her, and yet her heart, through Christ, experiences joy. How, how much more so can we, now that we know the fullness of God's plan to save us in Christ, we can say these words and mean them from our heart that our soul magnifies the Lord and our spirit rejoices in God our Savior. So as we finish this up today, we're going we're gonna to have the opportunity to express our joy through singing and express our joy through partaking of the Lord's table. These are just regular rhythms in our lives as we come to church every Sunday. But they are meaningful. They're not just rote, routine things. They're meant to bring our hearts into a place of response to God. And we can, along with the saints who have gone before us, we can magnify the Lord and rejoice in him. We can rejoice that he has saved us, that he has looked on us in our humble estate and has done mighty things for us. You know where that mighty thing was ultimately displayed? In the cross. As Christ suffered and died a humble death, he did so for you. He did so for me. And so we can rejoice in God our Savior because he died for us and he has secured us through that death and his resurrection, and eternity with him. And as we get to the table to eat and drink 
that bread and drink that cup, we are reminded again through that, that, that simple act of eating and drinking, we're reminded of what Christ has done for us. We can celebrate that in our hearts before him. So that's what we're going to do. And next Sunday, if you're able to join us, we're going to look at the, the end result of all of this, which is peace and reconciliation with God, which will be a beautiful thing for us to conclude this series with. So um, with that said, uh, if I don't see you next week, Merry Christmas. But let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump into uh, our time of singing and rejoicing in the Lord through that act. God, we thank you uh, that we have your salvation secured for us through Christ. And we think of these words, and we think of the, the, the words of the Apostle Paul, and we think of the words of the Apostle James, and these amazing passages that just draw our hearts to acknowledge our need, humble ourselves before you, come to you for salvation, and entrust our souls to you. And I want to pray, Father, that you would give us the hearts we need in this. Lord, you do the work. And I, and I ask that you would secure us with all the things that are going on in, in every life in this room has things happening that are hard. And we just ask you would, that you would help us and remind us of Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen.